Welcome to another edition of Spew. Society for the Promotion of Elfit No. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna beat you to it, and then I forgot what the show is called. Serious Potter in an Everyday World. That's the one that show. I'm Seth, here with my brother Justin. How you doing? I am pleasantly caffeinated. How are you, Farron? I'm doing well. I had a nice uh, naked smoothie this morning and a bagel with cream cheese and tomato slices. So I, I thought that sentence was going to end in a very different place. Yeah. But I'm glad it didn't. Indeed. So uh, we're back doing a little episode about masculinity today, which is fitting because I'm actually hosting a dinner this evening. Not this evening. Tomorrow evening. Maybe this evening when when this podcast is uh, uploaded, but I like to have some of my... Tell us about these dinners. Yeah, so I like to have some of my guy friends over, especially some of my friend groups from high school and before, um, because I realized that I did a lot of conversation... I had a lot of conversations with men in my job and through different events you know, in school and such things about Mm -hmm. masculinity, male privilege, rape culture. But I wasn't Mm -hmm. having all those same types of conversations with all of my guy friends, certainly maybe my closest friend or two, but with my kind of group of guy friends from high school, we typically talk about the more stereotypically masculine things with sports and food and whatever. So mm-hmm. wanted to kind of create an intentional Cars, space. Yeah. Shaving. Right. Mustaches. Steak. Or um, lacquer. Yeah. So I wanted to create a space where we could just intentionally talk about masculinity and be vulnerable with each other. So this will be, I think, the the third one that I've hosted. Right. You've done a couple of these. Yeah. So anyways, it should be fun. But uh, yeah, before we get too deep into that conversation, you had a little trivia question slash factoid slash discussion question. I do indeed. And I should make clear at the outset that this is not something that I realize. I read it on the interwebs, but I thought it was the setup for a really interesting slash maddening conversation. So in book six, in the first chapter, we learned that anytime there's a new muggle prime minister of the UK, the minister of magic visits them to let them know that a magical world exists, to give them briefings about things that the Minister of Magic decides they should know about, and just generally infuriates them with knowledge that they can now no longer share with anybody without being thought a mad person. So, there's a new Prime Minister in Britain, once again. Um, we could go into a discussion of our, our views of this particular fellow, but that's that's a little bit of a digression, although he does embody a couple of tropes of pretty awful masculinity. Anyway, um, somebody on the internet noticed that according to Pottermore, and here I should uh, let our sister know that at this point she can just close her ears. If you want to just go la 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 for the next 60 seconds, you won't miss anything. But according to Pottermore, we know the current prime minister of the muggle world as of 2014. Any guesses as to who it is? So when you say according to Pottermore, this is like J.K. Rowling apparently said that this is who it will be? or Right. So you know how Harry Potter takes place during the, the 90s. Yeah. Right? So the, the final battle is actually in 1997, and I think um, Albus has just started school at Hogwarts or something like that in, in the year 2019. Okay. So the trio, they're all um, approaching middle age, right? I think they were all born in 1980. Right. So in this year, in the Harry Potter world, any guesses as to who 
the Minister of Magic would be? Well, the idea was that Kingsley took over sometime, you know, after <clears throat> the fall of Voldemort. Um, mm-hmm. But right. several but years that was later, almost twenty years ago now. Yeah, it was more than twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. So somebody young, ambitious, um, <clears throat> interested in politics, starts agitating for the rights of the oppressed early on. Okay, I was gonna say Percy Weasley, but not so much after that clue. <laughs> oh Lord, Percy could have been Minister of Magic at some point. Um, Hermione. It's Hermione. Oh, I don't really see. And her. I'm not sure if a conversation between Hermione and Boris Johnson would be immensely satisfying or just really frustrating. I'm, I would imagine they wouldn't get very far in diplomatic relations. Um, Most likely not. I also don't see Hermione. I mean, she even says that she doesn't want to go into working at the ministry because she wants to do something, do good with her life. That's true. So I don't really see that happening. Well, somebody asks her if she is interested in a career in magical law. Scrimjar, I think, in book seven. Yeah. So, but I mean, still <clears throat> seems kind yeah. of bureaucratic for her. Maybe she changes her mind. Yeah. All right. So to get to get into things here, we just thinking about different models of masculinity. This kind of rose out of our um, our episode about Hagrid earlier, and. One of the things that one where one one place to start would be with the Weasleys, um, who mm-hmm. have all sorts of different men in their family, and each one kind of, with the exception of Fred and George, who are kind of lumped together, each one kind of exemplifies a different trope or just different characteristics that we often see in men. So, um, maybe let's start with the oldest Weasley that we know who is male that we know are you are you implying that they have older kids that nobody talks about I wasn't just talking about the kids I mean I guess we could start with Uncle Billius oh okay you you were talking about Arthur yeah yeah oh god Uncle Billius (laughs) that is actually that is a short story that I would love to see he was the one who was always the life of the party right Apparently. And then he kicked the bucket, as they say, after he saw the Grim. Exactly. Yeah. He got a little weird, as Ron mentions. Yeah. <clears throat> so Arthur... Although between those two personality traits, there's just... There's got to be a story there. Right. <clears throat> I feel robbed that it doesn't exist. <clears throat> yeah. So, actually, I was just talking about this trope yesterday. So Arthur is pretty nerdy, kind of embarrassing... Um, and he's a little bit poked fun at, I think, because he, because Molly, quote unquote, wears the pants in the relationship and he's a bit of a pushover Mm. at times. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that can be one of the things that we see a lot with men in media is that they are kind of the incompetent parenting figure where, they don't really know how to take care of the kids or take care of the household or cook or do laundry. And they end up just being another kid for the mom to take care of in a heterosexual mm-hmm. relationship. Um, which is just, you know, another example of patriarchal structures and the ways that men can get away with that and not really um, be held accountable for their part in upholding the family structure or the household. But, um, but I think with Arthur, you know, he's definitely parents, his kids to some extent. Um, but I think it's more just Molly and Arthur kind of are put into the typical heterosexual gender roles, parenting system. Um, yeah. 
it is a little unfortunate that they don't do more to subvert that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can even remember there's a reference to the only time that uh, the kids ever saw Arthur as angry as Molly. Mm. Um, now I can't remember what instigated that, but there was some spell that they had tried that actually put themselves in, in some serious danger. I think it was the twins. Right. Um, yeah. Which just reinforces that Molly is the one who gets angry, who sets up the discipline in the family, um, sort of sets up that classic, Oh, mom said, no, let's ask dad dynamic. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which is, <clears throat> And you do see how Arthur stands up for himself at the ministry um, and as a member of the Order of the Phoenix. Um, you can see when Harry is, when they're infiltrating the ministry and Harry is masquerading as Runcorn, you can see how Arthur really stands up to him and makes it clear like he's not a pushover all the time. True. I actually loved that scene. Yeah, that was cool. I love scenes where you can see characters from different perspectives. Um, You were just uh, mentioning, and we'll get to this a little later, but you were mentioning that there are probably all sorts of conversations that Hermione and Ron have that we just never see because everything's from Harry's perspective. Yeah. And when they're infiltrating the ministry, it gives us the chance to see things from a different perspective than Harry's because um, they're camouflaged. And so it gives you the sense that maybe what we see of Arthur is just the way that he presents himself to his kids. Maybe he wants to seem to them as though he's more of a softy so that they feel comfortable coming to him with questions, that sort of thing. Whereas at the ministry, he certainly seems like he has still this reputation for being kind of a nerd, kind of a weirdo. He's interested in all these gadgets, but the one conversation he has with this, not a Death Eater, but uh, um, very much a bully part of uh, part of Umbridge's regime. This guy who is, to the extent he's described, he's described as intimidating, and burly, and just kind of a jerk. And Arthur takes absolutely zero shit from him. Right. Just has has absolutely no time for this guy. And so I do like that that his personality is the trope is subverted a little bit in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just going to mention also another kind of example of him making some overly eccentric decisions when he decides to get stitches to, uh, try to heal his snake bite. Um, (laughs) and then they're visiting him in St. Mungo's hospital and, they can hear, you know, him explaining this to Molly and everyone is like, oh, this is pretty uncomfortable. I'm going to leave. Uh, <laughs> so, and that probably wasn't just to portray or just to put out a more approachable, uh, not to be more approachable for the kids. He was just engrossed in his fascination with muggle technology probably though i i would have loved if that had actually worked right you know if the stitches had worked faster than magic right alas i mean this is maybe another episode sometime but there's totally a bunch of muggle technology that would be super useful if wizards used it like the internet oh yeah um i mean harry even mentions that he wants to to figure out a way to get an aqualung so that he can survive underwater right um yeah so overall you know arthur kind of fits into some traditional ideas but good guy and works really hard for to protect his family and um to work against Voldemort. so and i will say seems like he doesn't have a hard time being himself right he knows that his fascination with with muggles and with plugs and his battery collection 
is kind of embarrassing, and most wizards would look at him like <clears throat> like he was an outrage to wizarding society. But he doesn't really care about that, and he just is himself, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. So moving on from there, next up would be Bill. Bill is kind of the super cool guy. Um, you find out that he was a prefect at Hogwarts, kind of the model student, but everyone loves him also. Um, he ends up marrying Fleur, who at first seems to just be like the shallow, vapid, hot girl. But then later on, both Fleur and Bill show another level of depth. Um, and when they're living at Shell Cottage, you know, embracing Ron after he abandoned Harry and Hermione in the last book and giving Harry and, and them some advice about goblins, um, albeit maybe somewhat racist advice. Um, I was just thinking about the way Bill phrases it is something like, to the extent that there can be friendship between wizards and goblins, mm-hmm. I have goblin friends. Right. Which raises some some hackles for me. Yeah. Um, but then also just thinking about Fleur and how after Bill was bitten by Fenrir Greyback, Molly kind of assumed that she wouldn't want to marry him anymore. And she's like, oh, I wasn't just into Bill for his looks, you know. So I think there's a little bit of depth um, that you see later on. Obviously, Bill isn't as big of a character as some throughout the books, so we don't get to see him a lot. But, yeah, it just kind of exemplifies that idea of the cool guy who goes out and is the, the model student during school, goes and gets a cool job, makes a lot of money, or at least deals with money, and gets the girl. Mm-hmm. And that is another story that I just would have loved to have seen or would love to see in the future because J.K. Rowling's never going to stop writing um, to the dismay of some of her fans. Would have loved to see Bill at Hogwarts and what kind of prefect he could have been. Um, we don't really get to see many examples of prefects except Percy, Ron, and Hermione. Yeah. And the image that you usually get is of this sort of humorless disciplinarian um, coming out of the the British school system where their job is just to lay down the law and tell people not to do things and rat people out to the administration. And uh, I totally could have seen Bill being the sort of person who, you know, if, if he sees misbehavior, he'll call it out but he's also just the guy sitting in the common room furiously doing his work and people go over to him to ask him for his advice and get the the lowdown on what it takes to succeed as a six or seven year mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and he would he would be the guy who you would want to be because he is a snappy dresser and has has his earring game going on but he would also always give time for you if if you wanted his advice. Right, right. Gives off the aura of being super cool, kind of leading by example, but at the same time, like, is genuinely nice and wants to help people out. Mm-hmm. And I like that, that his personality was developed in that way. In book four, we don't really get a sense of him at all, except that he's distinguished from Percy by having a slightly shorter stick rammed up his ass. (laughs) And then he comes and visits Hogwarts during the third task, but we don't really get any sense of his his personality there either. Um, Basically until book seven. Um, Yeah. And there, there you do get a sense of him, and it really complicates this picture of the the hard-charging cool guy whom things seem to come really easy to, um, somebody who has has suffered some hardship and um, and really just serves more of a, an advisory role. Yeah, yeah. 
Speaking of another person who we wish we could have seen more of, Charlie is maybe the Weasley who we uh, don't, the most person, <laughs> the person who we get to know the least. Um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of words in a very strange order there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Speak English I well with sandwich. So he's kind of a outdoorsy lumberjack guy, really into dragons. Um, he was a Quidditch star at Hogwarts, and they say he could have played for England if he hadn't gone off to mess around with dragons. So definitely a outdoorsy jock type. Um, that's kind of all we know. Yeah, and that is really a, a pity because there's so much of an, op- an opportunity to complicate that particular trope. I mean, he is... Most of what we know of him is just this brawny, outdoorsy guy, kind of the, the jock of the family. He was athletic in school. He goes and gets a job that involves working outside. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It just it checks a lot of boxes um, without really giving us any insight into who he is as a character. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as if J.K. Rowling was crafting this family and thought, okay, well, we got the clowns. Um, we got, there's one girl, check. <laughs> there's a, um, a rule follower, check. There's a cool guy, check. Who else do we not have? Right. Let's throw Charlie in there. Yeah. So <clears throat> moving on from him fairly quickly then. Next up would be Percy who we've touched on a couple times. Um, Super stuck-up nerd, only worries about studying, way too ambitious, like way too ambitious. That turns him into an asshole. Later on, redeems himself in the smallest possible fashion. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Not a fan, I'm saying. I mean, he's all right, whatever. I think we should do another episode about redemption, and accountability and such but um but yeah he's maybe of all of them he and he and friend of george as well but they are just like to the extreme like percy is the rule following nerd that's Mm -hmm. the epitome of his character and and then you know the ambition um but really deviates from that very slightly up until the very end of the series. Yeah. Why are you uh, less impressed by his conversion? For me, it was just too little too late. And maybe if you're looking at the holistic, you know, lifetime of the Weasleys, then later on after the books, he could have redeemed himself some more and kind of reintegrated himself into the family and everything. But since all we're seeing is through the end of book seven, it's like, okay, you had all these chances to own up to your mistakes and realize that you were wrong this whole time and that it was um, traitorous of you to suggest that Voldemort was not back to parrot the party line that everything was fine and that Harry was just a liar you know after you were at school with him for years you know so Mm. all he does you feel like that is comes back and says like yeah I was a git sorry and they're like okay (laughs) well they are all about to die right I probably I imagine they had some extremely long talks after that right hence too little too late because he's only showing up because he's like oh shit what if like all my family dies in this battle and then i feel guilty the rest of my life Mm -hmm. well there's a time when mrs weasley said something very similar to that to the twins what if you know who'd got you and all uh the last thing that i said to you was that you didn't get any owls yeah. Casting aspersions on her motivations there as well. Okay. 
I mean, there's a big difference between Molly <clears throat> criticizing her sons for not getting enough OWLs and Percy walking away from his family and participating in this <clears throat> smear campaign of Harry and putting forth propaganda to prevent <clears throat> anyone from actually fighting against oppression. So, I, I will grant you that there is a slight difference there. Yeah, good. I suppose I've been doing some work on our school's college counseling team, and I'm a little bit uh, sensitive when I hear about a parent fighting <laughs> kids too hard for not getting good enough grades. That's fair. Kids are stressed enough, you know, standardized tests and college being harder than ever to get into and the return of an evil dark lord. It's all, it's, there's a lot of stress on these kids. Absolutely. It's true. Um, I will say the one part that I do like is um, you get a little glimpse into Percy with his relationship with Penelope Clearwater. And I think it's just kind of nice to show that, you know, even nerds can have girlfriends. And, <laughs> you know, well. that's a trope that, like, all the nerdy people who care about school can't ever have a romantic relationship because no one wants to be with them. And so just to show that in a very casual way that, you know, there's people that kind of enjoy Percy's attitude and ambition and uh, dedication to his the rules. And you just got to find That's someone who, you know, is weird in fair. a similar way that you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Though he is, in book two at least, embarrassed about the relationship. Right. Which is, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But, you know, you should understand that you don't always want to share your intimate details of your relationships with all the members of your family. True. Or at least not with your 11-year-old sister, who will immediately tell everyone. Right. That's fair. So do you feel like to the extent that you're not a fan of Percy's conversion, do you think that that plays into an element of toxic masculinity as well? Some kind of refusal to admit that you are wrong, or is that just um, a dickishness that's unique to his character? Yeah, I think it could be both. Um, certainly, certainly masculinity works in ways to, that makes it difficult for a man a lot of times to admit that they're wrong. Uh, and certainly ambition is a characteristic of masculinity oftentimes that's encouraged. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So Mm -hmm. it's one of those things like with any characteristic is that because of social construction of masculinity or is it because of just that person's individual personality it's kind of like there's a blend of where one ends and the other begins like all of our personalities are in some way shaped by masculinity but you can't necessarily say like if i grew up female that i wouldn't still have ambition you know Mm -hmm. but it's all interconnected and i don't think you can really make meaningful distinctions there so that's definitely something we can learn from Percy. Uh, and, you know, all men listening, like a reminder that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to admit that you're wrong. Um, and it's important to admit that you're wrong and really take stock of why do I feel so strongly about this? What is making me think that everyone who I ever respected before this, you know, is wrong about this and I'm right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of those things like uh, there's that common like piece of advice like don't listen to the haters or don't worry about what other people say about you, you know, just be yourself, whatever. And it's like, yeah, don't worry too much about what people think of you. But if everyone thinks you're a dick, <laughs> maybe there is something that you could think about changing. You are the common element in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. It is 
it's something that plays out in our political conversation a lot too. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll often be praised if you were the only one in the room who thought that a decision was the right one and it plays out and seems like you made a good call. Um, with the the raid um, during which Osama bin Laden was killed, for example, there was a lot of dissent in the room as far as whether that raid should be carried out. Um, they didn't have perfect information. It wasn't clear that he was actually there. And since we got him, then the person who decided to go forward with the raid is praised, mm-hmm. is a tactical genius. And we forget that could have easily gone the other way. And the fact that it came out right, or you know, the operation was a success, doesn't actually have that much bearing on whether the decision was a good one. I was also recently at, uh, at the George W. Bush Presidential Library, which was not a place that I ever expected to be. <laughs> um, it was interesting. You could probably write a dissertation on the use of propaganda in that building. Um, and there's, there's a fair bit there on Bush's view of himself as a decider. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was important to him that, um, that decisions be made, that they be made... Um, with strength and uh, a lack of ambiguity. And he even, you know, he titled his memoir to that effect. Um, It seemed very important in that administration that there not be any mixed messages, that whatever decision we're going to make, we're going to make it, and it's done now. We, We decided, and it's a good thing that we decided. Which is actually something that I try to adopt in my own life because I tend to be a less decisive person. Um, I try to just kind of just if I'm tormented about something, I'll just make a decision and go with it because most of the time the decision wasn't that consequential mm-hmm. and I can live with the outcomes, whatever they are. And I'm not going to be invading any Middle Eastern countries anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, that was probably further afield from Percy than we meant to get. <laughs> so. What do you think about Gred and Forge? Gred and Forge, what a duo. Um, clearly they inhabit the class clown, funny comedy, bringing humor to every situation type of uh, trope of masculinity. I do appreciate that they are not ashamed of anything. I always think about when everyone's kind of getting nervous about who they're going to go to who they're going to go with to the Yule ball and uh Harry and Ron are kind of talking to Fred and George and I forget which one of them it is but we'll just pretend it's Fred and they're asking like so Fred who are you going with he's like Angelina really have you asked her good point good point Angelina hey Angelina, want to go to the ball with me? All right, then. (laughs) And it's just very simple, and they're just not going to play into the game of being embarrassed about being themselves. or um, Yeah, so, and then Mm -hmm. in very... Is he taking her acceptance for granted there? Are we... You could sort of read that two ways. Like, oh, you know, of course the girl is going to go with me because I'm awesome. Right. You could read that as him being a bit arrogant. arrogant and just taking for granted that anyone would go with him because he's he's so funny and popular. Right. And he does do a little bit of the uh, trying to wear her down thing. Uh, or maybe that's Lee Jordan, right? With Angelina? Uh, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Okay. I'm Yeah. So there's a, a Quidditch match. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. yes. Where Lee Jordan that. is announcing and McGonagall keeps getting pissed at him. And mm-hmm. there's some sequence and Angelina Johnson I mean, that gets could the be ball. Literally, 
incredible seeker or incredible chaser and very good looking as well. I've been saying it for years, but she still won't go out with me. You know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's your reaction to that? I feel like. I think that that kind of behavior is the sort of thing that um, used to be more acceptable, especially if it were coming from this sort of class clown type. Yeah. But and could still be if they have if they have the sort of trusting relationship where mm-hmm. they understand how those comments are meant. Yeah, but probably if you looked from Angelina's perspective, you know, I don't know if she could actually hear Lee while she's flying mm-hmm. around, but most likely she'd be really embarrassed and like, dude, I was trying to be nice. I'm trying about to win it. a Quidditch game here. Yeah. Why are you making this game about my attractiveness? First of all, I'm more than that. Secondly, you asked me out. I said no. I was trying to be nice about it, and now you're just trying to wear me down. Like, back off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just like they're buddies, and Angelina's like, yeah, good try. Not going to work. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, could be. Or maybe they've been secretly dating this whole time. Yeah, and that's their cover story. Yeah. Or maybe Lee's gay, and he's trying to cover for it. We'll never know. Well, I'm sure J.K. Rowling will tell us in 20 years, Uh and we'll just all have to accept it. Yeah. All right, so I think we kind of get the gist of of Fred and George. So going to Ron. Wow. A lot to unpack here. (laughs) Speaking of kind of... You can just consult your notes. Yeah, speaking of kind of objectifying women, Ron definitely does that. There's the whole scene um, where they're talking about who to go to the Yule Ball with and uh, Hermione. Who is that person whose nose is off-center? Eloise Midgen. Eloise Midgen, yeah. Um, So there's that whole thing, and they even have a conversation about, like, so you're just going to go with the most attractive girl who will take you even if she's completely awful. What's the, that's not the exact quote, but even if she's mm-hmm. horrible or something. And Ron is like, yeah, pretty much. Yep. So, and we should say, there's probably a caveat here that a lot of the characters we're talking about are, you know, middle school age. Right. However. Typical behavior for 14-year-olds. Right. However, it's just good to to think about that and dissect it and think about the implications of people looking at some of these characters as role models as they're reading or listening or watching the movies. Um, Hermione tells him that he has the emotional intelligence of a teaspoon, uh, which seems about accurate. Checks out. Yep. Mm -hmm. I have measured it. Yep. Uh, Fact check, true. Nearly Headless Nick said that he had, what was the, is a blunt axe. He displays all the sensitivity, sensitivity of a blunt axe. Yeah. He also buys the, whatever it is, like 101 ways to charm witches. Um, and he's kind of trying to use this book as a guide for how to kind of take things to the next level with Hermione um, and tries to give Harry some advice as well. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. We have plenty of examples, real world examples of people trying to learn romancing abilities from books. And to be fair, Ron doesn't seem to be following the, uh, the pickup artist play like playbook. Doesn't seem to be negging Hermione or playing, weird psychological games with her he's actually complimenting her which she finds very confusing yeah (laughs) yeah it's like yeah maybe you should listen to her (laughs) it's not really a you know pickup artist technique just more of a technique to be a decent human being but um wait girls like that weird right which i've been doing this all wrong but I guess the point is that probably shouldn't be your motivation to like only listen to people because you're trying to get in their pants. 
Um, but there were definitely some good things about Ron as well. Um, we've talked before, you and I, and maybe a little bit on the podcast, about friendship. Um, friendships mm-hmm. between men in media. Um, we've talked about this in Star Trek. Um, but also there's one of the one of the elements of toxic masculinity and how that system perpetuates itself is through the types of relationships that men have with each other. And it's one of the reasons why I'm having these dinners um, is because sometimes men have buddies and guy friends who they're friendly with, but they don't actually share their true emotions with or they're not vulnerable with them they don't really ask them for advice about subjects that matter that kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah that is a very recognizable toxic masculinity trope the the macho guy who mans up um, keeps it all inside yeah shows strength through silence and invulnerability right sneak peek at Kingsley Shacklebolt. Um, <laughs> but I think Ron and Ron and Harry, you know, have a really admirable friendship where they talk about vulnerable things. And um, obviously there could be more. And I think the whole emotional intelligence of a teaspoon thing, like Ron definitely uses Hermione to <clears throat> do a lot of the emotional labor that he needs for him but at the same time i think ron and harry their friendship should be mentioned as something exemplary and goes deeper than a lot of surface level male relationships i suppose i mean do they talk much about their internal lives that much it's a lot of strategizing and how do we defeat the dark lord and how do we pull off this caper and um how do we get the girl what do you think about hagrid's latest troubles how often do they really talk about how their role in this friendship is making them feel um i mean for example um and now now I'm really going to offend both you and our sister because I can't remember whether this is in the book or the movie Mm. or both. Um, But in book four, Ron and Harry have basically been broken up, right? Because Ron thinks that Harry put his name in the Goblet of Fire and or is enjoying all of this fame and or is just feeling generally resentful because he's always playing second fiddle. And then they make up eventually, because Harry was in genuine danger of being roasted on a spit by a dragon. And Ron comes to his tent and says, you know, I I really think whoever put your name in the goblet, I reckon they're trying to do you in. And Harry realizes that there's nothing more that needs to be said. (laughs) And they embrace, and like, it's all good. And Hermione is furious with both of them, because she's like, surely... Surely there is more that you could discuss on this topic. And to be fair, I, I think there is. And Hermione has been doing all the work of like trying to get them to be civil with each other and to be friends again th- for weeks and weeks. Mm-hmm. And now... And explaining to them, like, this is the source of your problem. I have analyzed the situation. Here is what your friend is thinking. Here is why he has so pissed at you. Right. Now go forth and solve this. Right. And then it's just and they're like, just like, <laughs> yeah, they just, you know, a dragon comes in and then he's like, yeah, I, I think someone's trying to do you in hug. All right. That's it. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you might be onto something there. Um, and certainly you kind of see it again in the last book when, and a lot of this is blamed on the Horcruxes, but there's all this resentment, and which is fair, right? And Ron is super pissed at Harry for not for having a real plan and everything, and then he leaves, 
And when he comes back, it's kind of like they're all just so happy that he's back. Well, Harry's happy that he's back and saves his life. Happy that Ron saved Harry's life, to be clear. Um, Hermione's super pissed and doesn't forgive him for a while. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like Harry and Ron don't seem to have any emotions that they need to unpack there. It's just like, sweet, (laughs) we're moving on from that. And Hermione's like, what the hell? You can't just show up and think everything will be fine again. Well, why not? Clearly it is. Yeah. Why do you need to do all this processing? Yeah. So maybe uh, as I listen to the books this next time, I'll try to find some times when Harry and Ron are really talking about vulnerable topics. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a good thing to consider. Uh and I know how you can tell how they feel about each other mm-hmm, and sure. how Harry just has never had anything close to a friendship like he has with Ron. But, right. And you can see it certainly in Harry's inner monologue. Um, he is immediately down in the dumps just at the prospect of riding the Hogwarts Express with someone who is not Ron. Yeah. Like... So there's clearly real, real love there. Um, And I will say, I do give Harry some credit for for taking the time to process his emotions with some people. Um, His go-to conflict resolution strategy in books four and five seems to be, talk to Sirius. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly in book five, when he begins to worry that Voldemort is somehow possessing him, um, he opens up to Sirius and again oh this is embarrassing because the there's a really touching scene in the Order of the Phoenix movie one of the only good things about that movie but they do this in the wrong order and now it's jumbled up the plot in my head but he opens up to Sirius in a really vulnerable way and says like I think I think I'm going mad I think there's a snake inside me which for a 15 year old dude would be that would be a serious moment of vulnerability Mm -hmm. Um, as Ginny points out there would be other people to talk to who might be much more logical choices right so we can't give him too much credit for discernment and uh, logical thought but like he's looking for somebody to to open up with and to and for for reassurance yeah and book five is sort of the Harry in book five gets a bad rap because he is angry all the time and speaks in lots of capital letters and that's just kind of the the stereotype of book five Harry but he also is starting to really open up to this brother father figure in Sirius in that book which is obviously what makes that book so damn sad mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so diving to Harry a bit more overall He's a little bit arrogant um, at different times, certainly not at the beginning of the series. Um, and that kind of manifests manifests itself in his inability to ask for help, which is another big masculinity thing. Um, certainly there are a few times, like you point out, where he tries to get advice from Sirius, but it's like over and over. Uh, it's really his friends who are kind of helping him get through everything. Um, whether it's Harry and Harry and Ron in the first book, getting past all of the obstacles to get to the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, it's Hermione who really figures everything out with the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, on and on. <clears throat> and then even at the end of the series... He's got this whole idea that he's just going to go into hiding and, like, find all the horcruxes by himself and defeat Voldemort because he's Harry Potter and he's got this. It's like, um... I'm Harry Potter. Harry, Harry Potter. Yeah. I don't really think you got this. And maybe if you did have some more vulnerable conversations with your friends, you'd realize that they really do want to come with you. 
Um, at the same time, he is in many ways an outcast, certainly at the beginning, living at the Dursleys, and at different times, like when the whole Wizarding World thinks that he's lying. And he fights for other outcasts. He develops a really cool friendship with Luna and always advocates for her. Um, same with Hagrid. Um, so obviously he has some admirable qualities, but yeah, could do a, a bit better of asking for help and embracing the help that he does get and understanding how much of an impact that has on his overall success. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on Harry? You said most of it. Um, I mean, again, you have, you have a dynamic in the trio where everybody has a specific role to play and Hermione ends up doing a lot of both emotional labor, as you mentioned, but also like, um, <laughs> essential Voldemort defeating labor. She does all the research. She figures out what they're going to need to do in order to destroy the various Horcruxes. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's a problem in and of itself, but you do get kind of this macho vibe with Harry where he is not, he's not dumb, but, um, I don't know. I'm stepping back from this a little bit because he does spend plenty of time at the library, usually at the last minute, but he's, he doesn't have this sort of anti-nerd vibe to him. Yeah. And I mean, there's, I don't, I don't know with Harry. Yeah. He, and that's why he's a compelling character. He's, he's a bit complicated and he's the hero, but same time, not perfect. Um, but yeah, like I think about in the seventh book when they're at Bill and Fleur's wedding and everything's good and then suddenly like the ministry has fallen they are coming and harry's like oh shit like why don't i have my invisibility cloak with me like why don't i have all my stuff we're all screwed and then hermione's like oh i've got it all here in the bag let's go like before their mission has even started she's already <laughs> saving the day um and he's just like oh sweet i can always count on you to actually do everything <laughs> uh yeah so that's harry um some other prominent characters that uh show some kind of typical masculinity things or maybe show some cool ways to subvert toxic masculinity um serious touched on him a second ago kind of very similar to bill in a lot of ways Super cool in high school, chasing after the ladies, also horrible bully, and definitely a dick to Snape. Um, and then later on you see like a little bit more depth. You see him acting as this father figure to Harry and how much he cares about Harry and everybody else. Um, although also falls prey to some of that arrogance and um, savior mentality wanting to go to the ministry mm -hmm. and um, save everybody and kind of like but that's just who he is he's like talking trash with Bellatrix as they're dueling like that's that's who he is um, and it's not his fault that he died but he's just yeah mm -hmm. I do like that Sirius gives us an example of maybe the kind of redemption that we are interested in. Um, it's not sugarcoated at all that Sirius and James were pretty horrible in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not, it's not excused. It's not, I mean, Sirius tries to downplay it a bit by explaining how awful Snape was. Um, but Lupin doesn't. Lupin is very embarrassed about it and ashamed of the way that he enabled that behavior. Right. And we don't see the work that they've put in in the 20 years since then, but clearly they have. Right. Yeah. Um, and then Dumbledore. 
<laughs> Very interesting one, actually. Early on, we just see him as this old, wise, stoic man, knows the answer to everything, kind of secretly in control, behind the scenes, pulling the strings. But then as you learn more about him as a young man and the racism that he and Grindelwald got up to, um, he was a bit too cool for his family, felt like he was above them, and then kind of lives with that guilt for the rest of his life. Um, Although if he was really that guilty, don't you think he could have made up with Aberforth? I mean, how long are they living, like, so close together? And because when do you think that, when do you think Ariana died? Like, how long ago? It must well, have been, like, 100 years ago. Um, um yeah, because Dumbledore is in his, he's like, 150 when he dies, right? Yeah. According to J.K. Rowling. Sorry, Cassandra. But we know that he defeats Grindelwald in 1945. That is canon. Okay. And the Fantastic Beasts movies would imply that he's at least middle-aged by the World War I era. Okay. So, yeah, it has been a long time. So, Aberforth and Albus live essentially in the same town for a hundred years and they can't make up <laughs> like come on that's some serious toxic masculinity right there that's that's some varsity level grudge holding well but you do see that dumbledore um for all that he seems to be a very compassionate man veers away from difficult conversations yeah um, he, this is actually, this is kind of a classic avoidant behavior um, where he begins to fear that, so two things in book five, right? He begins to fear that if Voldemort possesses Harry, realizes that Harry and Dumbledore have a close relationship, um, that Voldemort will try to use that connection in order to harm one or two of them. Mm -hmm. Rather than trying to explain that to Harry and making some sort of plan, Dumbledore just ignores Harry for most of book five and creates all of this doubt and anger in Harry by giving him the cold shoulder for no reason that Harry can determine. It's, I mean... (laughs) It's the sort of behavior you would expect from, like, a 16-year-old boy who wants to break up with his girlfriend or boyfriend, but is not looking forward to that conversation, and so just starts acting like a jackass to their partner so that their partner will break up with him for him. Right. Like, that is not a productive strategy. And you're also being a jackass. So then at the same time, he refuses to tell Harry about this prophecy that has huge implications for Harry's past, present, and future. And claims that his motivation is basically, well, this is going to make you very sad. <laughs> I care about you too much. And I, I would be unhappy to make you sad. Right. It is incredibly selfish. I mean, understandable, because, yes, that would be a really difficult conversation. But, like, you're the adult in this relationship by a considerable margin. (laughs) Yeah. Like, man up, to use an awful phrase, and just tell him what he needs to know. Yeah. So it's interesting because... Yeah. So... Obviously, Dumbledore is a positive character, very compassionate, does a lot of work for to advocate for the oppressed. Um, 
but like you're saying, shies away from difficult conversations, has some weak spots where he doesn't really act in the best interest of others because it would make him uncomfortable, right? So delaying mm-hmm. for so long before confronting Grindelwald. And he seems to have trouble confiding in people too. I mean, yeah. he works with McGonagall for who knows how long and apparently shares very little of his plans or of his inner life with her. Right. Even though she would be the natural choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there is this desire to ask him to have some fortitude and just, I know it's going to suck, but you're going to feel a lot better after you do it. And, the world will be a better place because you're able to do this. But there seems to be some sort of block for him where he just really struggles with having those types of conversations, um, being able to really talk to Aberforth about their past and their family and what he was thinking and what that relationship with Grindelwald meant to him and why it's still not acceptable though way he acted and all of that kind of stuff um so yeah it's one of his character flaws that makes him interesting and we can still admire him for a lot of things um but just didn't quite come through in moments that he really needed to yep yeah so i mentioned kingsley earlier He is very much a caricature of that stoic, badass man. Um, Kind of the epitome of the the best aura that is around an impenetrable superhero figure. And theoretically, he becomes Minister of Magic later on. And he kind of like... We don't really know too much about him, so that's why he feels like a caricature. And... You know, maybe mm-hmm. he does have all sorts of like intimate, vulnerable conversation with the people he's closest to. We just don't know. But uh, that was a big reason why I, he was like my favorite character in Harry Potter for a long time because it's very easy for like young men to want to be like those impenetrable superhero types. I do remember that. Mm-hmm. I remember it well. Yeah. And I mean, he has all sorts of good qualities and he's on the right side and he, you know, sends the Patronus to warn everybody at Bill and Fleur's wedding that the ministry is falling and Mm -hmm. clearly very good at his job. Right. But yeah, we don't know too much about him and the things that he's prayed for, praised for are a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. So then we talked a little bit about how Hagrid is a really great um, example of masculinity. So on the one hand, he's super strong physically, he's tough, he's physically large, but he's also really emotionally vulnerable, and he cries, he's very maternal, Um, he supports the most vulnerable Now, what exactly do you mean when you say he's very maternal? Hmm? Are you... I'm not sure how to interpret that question. Are you referring (laughs) to that I am implicitly implying that, like, implicitly implying that that I'm implying (laughs) that's, like, taking care of people is maternal as opposed to paternal, which is itself kind of a patriarchal construct. That is exactly what I am implying. Okay. Implicitly. Yeah. (laughs) Which I will, I'll let you off the hook because Hagrid refers to himself as mommy, which is a bit messed up. Well, what is gender anyways? Um, Yeah. So, you know, he loves to take care of magical creatures. There's Norbert slash Norberta, Buckbeak slash Witherings. Um, you just see him being really emotional and grop. Um, so I appreciate that it's such a large, imposing figure who at certain times, 
you know, gets really angry and can mm-hmm. be really intimidating. But at other times, you see the soft interior and how um, how vulnerable he is with the trio and with his love for Dumbledore and with his insecurities about being a teacher and all of that kind of stuff is really cool to see. And I think provides a good role model for people. Um, although Very true. obviously there's still room for improvement and there's times when he is overly sentimental and sends Harry and Ron to go follow the spiders and potentially get them killed because he thinks that Aragog will wouldn't hurt them, you know. So it's like a little misguided at times, but yeah, his heart might call that a lack of emotional intelligence. Yeah, yeah. So props to Hagrid. Um, we hadn't talked about this last time. You like Hagrid? Yeah. Case closed. We hadn't talked about this, but would you want to talk about Lupin at all? Oh man, um. I feel like we could do a whole show about Lupin. Could we actually table that for for the next time? Sure, it's gonna be a little teaser. I'm, I'm gonna have to gonna have to head in a few minutes, so maybe cool. we should wrap this up. Yeah, just interesting. With, I have some thoughts about Lupin with him in Lupin context is, of is friendships the, and uh, marriage relationships and fatherhood and all sorts of stuff there. Mm-hmm. Lupin, to be clear, is the Harry Potter character I most want to be like. Yeah. As far as his his relationship with Harry in book three. Yeah. That's that's the kind of person I want to be. He also pisses me off so much. Right. In book seven. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, this has been an investigation into masculinity in Harry Potter and looking at different male characters. Um, and certainly... We're kind of really looking at kind of the toxic masculinity lens here and thinking about things from a very, like, well, this is the way they're presented to us in a very cisgender, heterosexual uh, paradigm. So Mm -hmm. just wanted to put that out there because we know that there's a lot more to gender and sexuality than those two very small boxes. But... uh, we're kind of working with what we have in the Harry Potter universe. And it's important for people to who inhabit those characteristics or those identities to be able to realize what kind of stereotypes are out there and how we can break free from those molds because ultimately we'll be able to interact with the world in a better way and hurt people less who we interact with. So, yeah. Well spoken. Awesome. Well, I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. And you, brother. Okay. I hope that you find many opportunities to be like Hagrid. Take care, brother. Take care, brother.